tuning to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. You are listening to the DC Public Library on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, DC. I am your host, Olubumi Bakari. This is our All Things Local series where we highlight the local history, culture, communities, and personages who have made an impact on Washington, D.C. and the world. My guest today is A. Peter Bailey. Mr. Bailey is a journalist, author, lecturer, and playwright. His works have appeared in Ebony and Essence magazines, The New York Times, New York Daily News, and The Negro Digest, just to name a few. He was the associate editor for Ebony Magazine and served as the associate director of the Black Theater Alliance. He was also a close associate of Malcolm X and was a founding member of Malcolm X's Organization of African American Unity. His works include Witnessing Brother Malcolm X, The Master Teacher, Harlem, Precious Memories, Great Expectations, co-author of Revelations, the autobiography of Alvin Ailey with Alvin Ailey, and Seventh Child, a family memoir of Malcolm X with Rodnell P. Collins. He's also written a play entitled Malcolm, Martin, and Mecker. He currently writes a bi-monthly column for the Trice Etney Wire Service. Uh, Thank you for joining me today, Mr. Bailey. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) So... Again, I've shared this before, but one of the things that I love about working in the public library is that you meet all types of people from all walks of life. And uh, Mr. Bailey frequents uh, one of the public libraries here in Washington, um, D.C. But my first time seeing you was um, on a documentary about Malcolm X called Make It Plain. Mm -hmm. Um, That was on uh, PBS. And so I think I, I met you maybe a few years ago. You probably don't remember. But somebody was talking about you. You were doing, um, working at the Anacostia Library. I guess you guys were working on a documentary. And they said a, they said your name, A. Peter Bailey. I was like, wait, I know that name from somewhere. And it was from that mm-hmm. documentary. And then fast forward to now, a few years later, you frequent um, another library, which I, I don't want to say just... You know, just because. But anyway, you were walking in just as casually as you please. And I'm like, wow, Mr. Bailey. So I wanted to have a talk with you and kind of talk about your life a little bit. Um, so I mentioned that you wrote a play, Malcolm, Medgar, and Martin, which was, uh, we were just talking beforehand that it was recently performed locally here in uh, Washington, D.C. at a bookstore. You want to talk a little yeah, bit it, about Yeah, it that? was not an actual production. It was what they call a dramatic reading. Okay. A dramatic reading of the play uh, at the uh, Second Story Books, mm-hmm. which is at uh, 20th and P Streets Northwest in, uh, in, the, in D.C., in Northwest Washington. And uh, I've, I've, I've been, I worked on the play, I, I started writing that play, God, got to be 15 or 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I've had readings in New York City four times, D.C. about six times, uh, a couple times down in South Carolina, okay. uh, in Richmond, Virginia, a couple of times. So it's, it's, it's been through numerous readings. There's only been one production, and that was done this past February at the Arc Theater 
in Southeast Washington. Did two productions, mainly for high school students. Okay. Uh, there were many high school students at each performance. Did two productions, and I was really very uh, pleased and surprised because you know, there's a lot, the play is not does not have a whole lot of action action type things. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to really pay attention as they're talking among themselves. Okay. And uh, but I, the students listened very carefully mm-hmm. and had some very good questions. You know, after it was over. Uh, in the play, what I really try to do is to, uh, uh, we are aware of, especially of Dr. King and Brother Malcolm, mm-hmm. uh, as the great warriors that they were. Mm-hmm. But too many people, unfortunately, do not know Medgar Evers, mm-hmm. who was a tremendous, uh, great, a great warrior. And, and I give him his props because unlike some of us, you know, who participated in the movement in D.C. and New York, places like that, this brother was in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which was like being on the front lines in the war against white supremacy and uh, and uh, Jim Crow. And so I decided, you know, he should be a part of this play because initially it was just going to be Brother Malcolm and Dr. King. Mm-hmm. But I included him. And of course it works because the three M's, everybody calls it the three M's, mm-hmm. Malcolm, Martin, and Medgar. Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole idea of the play is to show these men, not only as the great warriors as they were, but as fathers. Mm-hmm. Because I think people forget that between them, and they left behind 13 children, very young children, the oldest of which was 12, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, brother Malcolm's two youngest daughters had not even been born. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't born until the following, he was assassinated in February, and they were born in October. Mm-hmm. So I have them discuss in the play whether they had the right even for a righteous cause. Mm-hmm to leave 13 babies fatherless. Mm -hmm. And they talk about, you know, did they pay enough attention to security? And then, of course, in the second act, they do a lot of talking about current day activities, Mm -hmm. their reaction to events that have occurred since their assassinations, like the election of President Obama, the Million Man March, uh, the election of Clinton, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and it's written in such a way that I can update it so they have in the play that they just, the reading I just did, they had some commentary about, uh, you know, President Trump. Uh, they talk about leadership. They talk about unity. There's some part of this humorous. If they talk about some of the things like, like the sagging thing that's going on about, you know, mm-hmm. young black males and that kind of thing. So it's a really, gives, uh, you see them uh, still maintaining this, a, a connection mm-hmm. uh, with, with, the, with the community. And, uh, and, and to me, this is very important because I believe, uh, I guess I'm almost a, one of those believers in ancestor worship mm-hmm. because I, I definitely believe that, that, that our ancestors still play a, are a major force in our lives. Okay. Uh, I know for me, they are. Okay. And, and my, you know, my family ancestors and, you know, my, uh, my ancestors like Brother Malcolm and Dr. King and Medgar Evers and Fannie Lou Hamer and, you know, people who were the warriors in the, uh, in the struggle for equal right, equal justice, and equal opportunity. Okay, so speaking of family, let's go back a bit and talk about your upbringing. Um, you're not originally, originally from Washington, D.C. Um, you were born in Columbus, Georgia, and raised in Tuskegee, Alabama. Alabama. Uh-huh. So... Um, for the young people and people who aren't familiar um, with your life story, let's go back and let's talk about your upbringing. So um, tell me about where you're from and how that okay. influenced I was your born life. in Columbus, Georgia. Only My father was, a mili- was in the military, was a career man in the United States Army. 
So he was stationed at Fort Benning, which is right near Columbus. So that's where I was born. And, uh, but I was raised mostly in Tuskegee, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Because while my father was in the military, when I was you know, old enough like, to go to school, uh, my dad at that time, especially we're talking about the, you know, the late 1940s and early 1950s, uh, my dad and mom did not want my sisters and I to lose time in school as he was being moved around in the military. So we would spend the school year with my grandparents in Tuskegee. And uh, that way we had a continuous schooling. You know, a lot of children of military personnel, they, they are usually, many times they're behind on their grade levels because they were traveling so much. But we didn't do that. We stayed in Tuskegee uh, where we had to continue with education uh, uh, during, during the school term. And my father was stationed in places which regularly occurred in the, in the early years. Um, so I ended up going, being in Tuskegee from kindergarten until the middle of my sophomore year in high school when my dad was stationed in Nuremberg, Germany. And I didn't want to go, mm-hmm. but, but he insisted that, you know, this would be a good experience for you. And so I ended up going over to Nuremberg American High School, and I went from a, the total, you know, segregation that existed in Tuskegee at that time. I had never been to a single class with a white kid on any level from kindergarten until we went over there. And I get over there, and in grades 7 through 12, there were 15 black kids out of about 300-some children of military personnel. And it was called Nuremberg American High School, Nuremberg, Germany. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up being my second half of my sophomore year, my junior and my senior years of high school over there. I graduated from high school there. And uh, in, in all three cases, I was the only black kid in my class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, I, I learned very early, to me at least, uh, I have come to not be very fond of the whole Brown versus Board decision, which basically claimed that all black schools are inherently inferior, mm-hmm. not inferior because of the policies of the state, uh, the attitudes of the largest majority of society, but because they were all black. And I reject that because not only was I not behind, I'd been to all black schools my entire life up until, up until that time. And not only was I not behind my white peers academically, I was ahead of 95% of them academically. In fact, I ended up being the, uh, the uh, valedictorian, salutatorian of my senior class uh, and uh, president of my senior class. Uh, and I was the only black, you know, black youngster in the class. So I learned, you know, and that's why I, I reject this whole idea that a school is, is inferior because it's all black. If, if, it's, if the schools are inferior during that time, it was because of the policies of the state and the attitudes of the majority of society. And I think in many instances, they were not inferior. We, those, those teachers were dedicated to teaching us. Mm-hmm. And they, they did it. They did it in most instances. They really did it. So that, and then I graduated from high school in Germany, in Nuremberg American High School. We came back to the States. I graduated in June. We came back to the United States in August. And in January, I joined the United States uh, Army. Not because I was a great American patriot. I joined because I wanted to get the GI Bill of Rights to go to college. Right. Uh, my parents wanted me to go to Tuskegee mm-hmm. Institute, uh, which is now Tuskegee University. But I didn't want to go there because, you know, I had grown up there. I wanted to go, to, I wanted to, go to Howard right. University in Washington, D.C. So I said, well, I'll go in the military, you know, and get the GI Bill of Rights, and then I'll use that to go to, go to Howard. And, and, and that's what I did. You eventually came to Howard. I, I graduated. I, got, I was in the military three years, and right. I came to Howard. 
and I was in Howard from 59 to 61. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so what did the impact, what did um, Howard University... Tremendous impact. Okay. Uh, one of the most important people I met in my life was a history professor that I had at Howard named Dr. Harold Lewis. And I remember the first day of class, Dr. Lewis said to us, all of your lives you studied the history of people of European descent. In this class, you're going to study the history of the rest of the people in the world. And it was in that class that for the first time in my life, now I am now 20 years old, because I graduated at 17, joined the military, so I started college at 20. Uh, and I'm second half of my sophomore year, I'm 20 years old. And that was the first time I studied African-American history, African history, Native American history, and some Japanese and Chinese history, all in Dr. Lewis's class. It was the kind of class that I could not have gotten at any white university in America at that time. Not a single one. I doubt if I could get that kind of class at any of those, in those universities today. But you definitely couldn't get it at that time. And, and I think it was because of Dr. Lewis's class and the things that he taught us and me, and I became a tremendous uh, uh, history person because of that class. And then I think because of what he, I learned from him later in 1962 when I was in Harlem, I began to meet people like Brother Malcolm and John Henry Clark and John Oliver Killens and later Harold Cruz and Dr. Adelaide Sanford, those great black intellectuals. I was ready for them because of what I had, you know, learned from uh, Dr. Lewis. So, so let's go back. So, mm -hmm. what year did you did you graduate from? Howard no, I University? didn't. I went two years, mm -hmm. and uh, I had come up to New York to work in upstate New York during the summer. Mm -hmm. I came back down to Harlem to New York City, and I said, "Oh, I'll stay in New York for for the for the uh, fall semester and go back to Howard in the spring." Mm -hmm. I ended up never, never going back. back. So you know. was this um, 1962? Yes. Uh -huh. 1962. Yeah. And in the summer of 1962, and I was still saying that, but in the summer of 1962, I, I got involved with Brother Malcolm, and that was it. You know, uh, I, so, was, so I was with him during the last, I, I, I could not get involved with him in 62 because mm -hmm. at that time he was still in the Nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. And I had no desire to become a member of the Nation of Islam. I was, I was, I was going through that stage, you know, at 20, 24 years old, I was just rejecting Christianity mm -hmm. and uh, because of things that I had learned and I had no desire to, you know, to, uh, to become a Muslim. Mm -hmm. So I followed him from a distance okay. uh, until uh, he left the Nation of Islam. Now, were, you, I, were you writing at this time, at this uh, point? No, were you a journalist yet? You I, just... I, had not, I had not even thought of being a journalist. When I was going to Howard, my desire was to be a college professor. Okay. I was studying political science. Mm -hmm. And my desire was to teach, preferably on the high school or college level, preferably on the college level. And, uh, and this is what I'm preparing myself for. Mm -hmm. uh, I had not really decided, I think after Dr. Lewis's class, I had wanted to teach history. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but when I met, got involved with Brother Malcolm in, in, in uh, late December 1963 and really seriously in January 1964 and he was launching a new organization uh, the organization of Afro-American unity so so before you go into that mm -hmm. how did you meet Malcolm X what what brought you two together well the first in the summer of 1962 I moved to Harlem on a Friday night 
And I must say I moved to Harlem rather grudgingly because I had, I knew Harlem only from what I had heard. Mm -hmm. And you know, you hear those, oh, everybody's on drugs, everybody's a drug addict, everybody's either selling drugs, you know, everybody's doing this. And this is in 62? Yeah. And this was a terrible place to live. Mm -hmm. So I wanted no part of moving to Harlem. I'm serious. This is my attitude. And then a friend of mine, his mother, uh, had a boyfriend who for health reasons had to leave Harlem, leave New York, and move out, move out to Arizona. This man had a rent-controlled eight-bedroom apartment wow. on 142nd Street. Did you, you said eight bedrooms? Eight, not eight bedrooms, eight rooms. Oh, okay. Apartment, uh, three bedrooms okay. on 142nd Street in Harlem. 56, it was rent control, mm-hmm. $56 a month. Ooh. So I say, man, for that kind of rent, I'll take my chances on right, Harlem. Right. So <laughs> my Rudy and I moved to Harlem on a Friday night, and that Saturday morning, it was in the summer, 1962. I don't know the exact date, but I think it was late June. I'm pretty sure it was late June. Uh, we, you know, we moved in on a Friday night. Saturday morning, we got up, and instead of unpacking, we decided... We're going to walk down uh, Mal- Lenox Avenue, which is now Malcolm X Boulevard, mm-hmm. we, uh, and see, just look at this community, because he was from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. He, he was as naive about Harlem as I was. Right. So we decided to walk down, and we walked from 142nd Street. We got down to 116th Street in Lenox, then Lenox Avenue, and we saw a crowd gathering. And uh, we asked people, well, what's going on? And they said, Malcolm X is going to speak. Now, at that time, uh, I had heard of him vaguely. Mm-hmm. And what I heard, of course, was, you know, he was a he was boogeyman type stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, he, was, he, he thought all white people were devils and he did this. He believed in violence, you know, very limited knowledge. But what I had heard was that kind of stuff. So uh, we saw a crowd get So we, we decided, let's hear what he has to say. So he came on as he spoke. I remember it was a, he spoke outside. It was a very nice, sunny summer afternoon. And he spoke for about three hours. And by the time he finished speaking, I was a Malcolmite. Mm. I had never heard anyone talk about race and that kind of thing in this country with the clarity and the forcefulness and the knowledge uh, uh, that he had. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting there, could not, you know, just absorbing all of this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and how old were you at this time? I was 24. 24. 24. And there were two things, especially that he talked about, that, that stuck with me forever. One, uh, he said that, uh, you, that we are always told that the question of white supremacy is mainly in the South. You know, if you get rid of a few people like George Wallace... Governor George Wallace and Senator James Eastland and Sheriff Bull Connor, you know, those kind of people, everything was going to be cool. He said, that's not true. He said, white supremacists is the dominant ideology in, throughout the entire country uh, with, with it being more limited in some areas than the other. But it has existed throughout the entire country. That was, I had heard that vaguely before, but never the way he put it. And then the second thing I had never heard anyone talk about before, and he talked about the attacks on the mind and how this society attacked the minds of black folks. 
uh, and especially black youngsters. And, um, and by the time he got through talking about that, man, I was like, this was something I had never heard before. And then I began to think about Tuskegee, growing up in Tuskegee, going downtown to the segregated movie theaters in Tuskegee. Uh, unlike many places, you didn't have like black people sit in the balcony and white people sit on the lower level. In Tuskegee, they had two completely separate movie theaters, side by side. Mm. And on Saturday afternoons, Saturdays, black youngsters between about six and 13 or 14, we would go down to that segregated movie theater every Saturday and spend maybe from about 10, 11 o'clock in the morning until about three or four in the afternoon watching movies mm. and cartoons. And many of the movies were Tarzan movies. Mm. And you had this theater full of black youngsters sitting in these movie theaters every Saturday. For, for And I did it from six years old to about 13 years old, cheering for Tarzan and his chimpanzee cheetah <laughs> over the African warriors. Mm. We, 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 we wanted, we regarded the Africans when they would, because when the Africans were with each other, they spoke their own languages. Mm -hmm. To us, that meant they were idiots because mm -hmm. they couldn't speak English. Mm -hmm. And and then of course they wore nothing but the little thing you know around the clock. around the waist. Yeah. I mean it was, it it created a tremendously negative image of Africa in our minds, and we accepted that, mm. uh, and we cheered for Tarzan and Cheetah, as they fought off all these, uh, uh, crazy ignorant, you know African folks, and uh, and that went on as I said from the time I was about six years old until I was thirteen, mm. and uh, and of course. It meant that when, when I was growing up, you call somebody African, you better be ready to fight. Mm. Those are fighting words if you call somebody African. Uh, and uh, Brother Malcolm made me understand that this was an attack on our mind. And this is just, I mean, there were so textbooks, everything, all kind of television programs, all kind of things were attacks on our mind. Mm. He called it psychological warfare. Mm. And, uh, and So when did you, like, personally meet him? Okay, uh, after I heard him speak that Sunday, mm -hmm. anywhere he spoke in the New York City metropolitan area, I was there. Okay. And I would listen. If he said a book, I tried to find the book and read. If he mentioned a magazine or newspaper article, I tried to find it and read. Mm -hmm. Then in 18, I'm sorry, in, 19, in uh, 19, late 1963, uh, when he left the Nation of Islam, and uh, a young lady that I knew, a friend of mine, she, she one day she asked me about we used to meet and talk a lot. I was working at Time Inc. then mm -hmm. uh, as an editorial you reference. At, uh, Rockefeller Center. In Rockefeller Center in New York. Mm -hmm. And she worked for NBC, which is also in Rockefeller. That's when they first began to take on, you know, young black folks as interns mm -hmm. at, uh, at NBC. And uh, so we would, and they had these eating places, on, you know, underground. And we would meet down there and have, you know, either breakfast or lunch. Uh, and then one day she said to me, would you like to be a part of a new black nationalist organization? Uh, and I was kind of surprised because, you know, I never thought of her in those terms, you know. I, I would tell Teasley, I used to tell her later, I always thought you were a Miss AKA type. Mm -hmm. And um, so she said, I said, okay. So she said, I'll call you and tell you where to meet and what time. Don't ask any questions. So Saturday morning she called me and uh, told me where to go. And I went to this place. It was kind of surprising me because that's, this was a motel in Harlem that had a reputation of being one of those places you could check in for two hours. <laughs> so I was kind of surprised that we were going to be meeting there. 
But uh, were you a little suspicious when you arrived? I, no, I, I wasn't suspicious, but I was just surprised. <laughs> you know, and but when I got there, I realized that, that on the on the ground floor they had a conference room, mm-hmm. and that's where we went. We, we didn't, we, you know, we just went, and you could go to the conference room off the, you know, off the streets. You didn't have to go into the to the motel part, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I went in there and I saw a couple of people I recognized. I didn't know, but I recognized like Dr. John Henry Clark, wow. uh, author John Oliver Killens, and of course the, the young lady that I'd met and her, and her roommate who I also had met. Mm-hmm. And then there were about six or seven other people that I, that I had never heard and didn't know at all. They were all there. Like who? Do you want to name any others? None of them, none of them you know, had national names. Okay. Uh, even today, they didn't have those kind of national names. Mm-hmm. But however... The uh, and and we I've been there about twenty minutes. We've been talking to people and everything, and in walks all of a sudden in walks Brother Malcolm, until he walked through that door. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I realized I'm getting involved with an organization around Brother Malcolm, because mm-hmm. he never told me that. Right. And when he walked through the door, I mean, I almost fell off my chair. <laughs> I bet. And he walked in, introduced, sat down. And, and, and we had us introduce ourselves. And then we started talking about the formation of this new organization that was going to be called the Organization of Afro-American Unity. So do you think that you're, because you talked about ancestors in the beginning, do you, and then you followed Malcolm around, so do you think that your ancestors, like there was some type of cosmic alignment that I really do. prepared you for this meeting? No, no, I, well, it, it wasn't just, it, it, a lot of it was Dr. John, Dr. Harold Lewis. Okay. This is, see, I think. But still, I mean, it, it, it was that Dr. Lewis class that maybe. But of course, then, of course, I think my, you know, my family background, my, my parents had, and my family had never been like, uh, you know, political, mil, you call milits in that type. Mm-hmm. But they were solid, what I call solid black folks. Mm-hmm. They were solid black folks. And uh, so I had grown up in that kind of, you know, that kind of atmosphere. And uh, so. But I think the main person who prepared me for that was Dr. Lewis. Okay, so I'll let's go back care. to that day. Okay, so I give him you care. almost fell out of your chair, and then what happened? And then he came in, he sat down, introduced himself. Mm-hmm. And each one of us introduced ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then we began to talk about this organization he was going to form called the Organization of Afro-American Unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the Organization of African Unity, which, was, it had, which had just been formed in 1963. And, uh, and then we, we met for several weeks, putting this organization together. And it ended up being a, a publicly, officially announced on June 28, 1964. Mm-hmm. That's when it was officially announced uh, to the public. And during that time, when people were talking about various roles they were going to play in the organization, you know, the Youth Committee, the Economics Committee, the Education Committee, the Political Committee, the uh, the uh, the security, these, all the different aspects, and but nobody volunteered. To do, I knew Brother Malcolm wanted a newsletter, mm-hmm. and I had absolutely no journalism. Had never even thought about being a journalist in my life, but I but I so I I kind of volunteered to do the newsletter, mm-hmm. and uh, and I realized it, subjects in school that required you know research and writing. I'd always done very well in mm-hmm. both in high school and you know, in my two years at Howard. So uh, I ended up being the editor of the newsletter, mm-hmm. uh, 
we, we ended up putting out nine issues. The first three, we call them the OAAU newsletter. And then there had been a lot of talk about a white backlash, you know, to the movement. You know, so this, this is, this is what, you know, we're talking 1964, and it's already talk of a white backlash. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to call the newsletter the Blacklash. Mm-hmm. And it became the OAAU Blacklash. And I handled the editorial part of it. And there was this brilliant brother named uh, Leonard Sneed who handled the production part of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we put out nine issues of that thing, man, and it became like a real, uh, uh, for me, it was like incredible. My first article I ever wrote was in the first issue of the newsletter was about the, the, the uprising that occurred after, uh, in 1964 after this policeman shot and killed this 15-year-old black boy. Uh, you know, in in the on in, in, in uh, Manhattan, mm-hmm. on the west side of Manhattan, mm-hmm. and they had this big you know uprising in Harlem, uh, and and that was, the first article I wrote was about that, and it was it was also with that first article, because I always knew brother about like I said before, he taught, he taught us man, he would rec- you know he talked about this article and that article and, and we read, but the first time I had him officially. I acknowledge him as a teacher, was uh, in the very first issue of the newsletter. Mm. And I wrote an article about that, mm. you know, that, uh, uh, the killing of that boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brother Malcolm at the time was over in, in a, at the OAU meeting mm-hmm. over in, in Africa, in Addis Ababa. And but he would once the uprising occurred, he would call back and kind of get an update as what was happening. Now basically, he told us to stay out of it. Mm-hmm. He said because sometimes they deliberately do things to smoke certain people out so they can make these mass arrests. Mm-hmm. And he said told our people, he said stay out of it. Mm-hmm. You know that was, it. and and he would ask, and each each person you know in charge of each committee would then give a report to him over the phones of what they were doing. When it was my turn with the newsletter, and I was reading him what I had written. And I said, eyewitnesses to the murder. And he stopped me. He said, no, Brother Peter, you can't say murder. Because murder and murder are legal terms that you only use when the person has been convicted. Mm-hmm. And he said, call him a killer and refer to it as a killing because he's a killer and it's a killing no matter what the circumstances. He said, now, if you call him that and he's acquitted and we know he's going to be acquitted, he can sue. Right. And... Uh, and we were using the old-fashioned mimeograph machines, you know, that you turn to make all, get ink all over you. Mm-hmm. So I decided, and we'd already run off about five or 600 copies of this Whoa. thing. So Leonard and I, rather than rewrite it, we just scratched out the word <laughs> murder and wrote killing at the top. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and we distributed like that with, with killing written at the top. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and sure enough, when that police officer was acquitted, he sued Martin Luther King's organization and uh, the Congress of Racial Equality Corps mm-hmm. for distributing materials, uh, referred to him as a murderer. And that was, a, that was the one time my Brother Malcolm, you know, the, the, the master teacher, mm-hmm. kept my behind out of trouble uh, for, you know, by not using that word. And, and, that, and that was, a, I consider that to me like a, a major teaching experience that I got, besides all those other things I had learned from him. Mm-hmm. But just things like that, you know, he knew. Mm-hmm. He knew the country's legal system. And he said, no. and just like he told us, uh, that if we're having a rally or, or anything, 
And somebody stands by our rally and says, you know, we ought to go bomb the subways. He says, stop the meeting and put that person out immediately because nine times out of ten, that person is a plant. Now, you were, you were present at the assassination of Malcolm X. Yes. Right? So uh, what happened that day? And where were you when this happened? Well, February 21st, 1965, I was very cold. Sunny day, snow on the ground, very cold. I remember that it being very cold, but very sunny. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to the Audubon. You know, we were getting, having one of our regular, you know, rallies, OAAU rallies. And uh, uh, I went to the, uh, that morning I had seen an article in the New York Times about a group called the Deacons for Defense and Justice. And they would be saying that they were going to start protecting people who were in, you know, demonstrating and protesting against, uh, from being attacked while they were, you know, online by, you know, by the, by the white supremacists. Mm-hmm. And uh, they call themselves the Deacons for Defense and Justice, which I think is the greatest name came out of the movement. Mm-hmm. So I clipped that article out of the paper to take to the Audubon that afternoon uh, to show it to Brother Malcolm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, I, was, I was there. I got there early and, you know, doing little things you had to do to get ready. So when he came in, I was in, the, in a small lobby area. I was in the lobby area when Brother Malcolm came in. And he said, Brother Peter, uh, when you get a chance, come backstage. Uh, I got to talk to you about something. So I said, okay. About five or six minutes later, I went backstage. And this is what I tell my students to show you what a tremendous person this brother was. And, and his, 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 his courtesy, courtesy and his, his uh, connection and his feelings. The day before, February the 20th, in our office in the Hotel Teresa uh, in Harlem, I had been in the office. I had written a kind of a news release type thing to be distributed at the rally the next day. And, we, and Brother Malcolm came by the office that day. And I showed him a copy of this. And he, when he read it, he said, Brother Peter, uh, I, I wish you wouldn't distribute this. So I said, okay. You know, having learned before, about the whole thing, about the, you know, the, the murder, murder thing. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, obviously I had written something that he felt could get us in trouble mm-hmm. for something we said rather than something we did. Right. So I said, okay, and I put them all to the, we, again, we'd already run off about five or six hundred copies. Mm-hmm. So I kind of put them to the side. And so, when, so uh, that, that next day when he came in and I went backstage, now this brother is under all this pressure. Two weeks before he had been banned from France. The weekend before his home had been firebombed, and now, you know, he's got, you know, he's in the autobahn, getting ready to make a speech. And despite all this pressure he's under, when he asked me to come back, he said, "I hope you understood why I asked you to not distribute that with the news reader. I know you put a lot of work in it, and I hope you understood why I asked you not distribute." It. I said, "Yeah, I understood." And uh, and he said, "Okay." And then we want to talk about a few other things. But I said to myself, now he's concerned about my feelings. All this pressure he's under. Mm-hmm. And he was concerned about my feelings. And, you know, and, and I never forget that. And I always like to relay that to, to students. Because, you know, I, I've been teaching since 1998 as, a, as an adjunct, you know, at about three different universities. And uh, as an adjunct professor. And I always t- tell them that as a sign of, of, 
of what a great human being this brother was. You know, he, and, uh, but I'll never forget that. And I also remember that he, you know, like I said, those three things that happened like three, three weekends in a row, banned from France, home fireball. And, and he said to us, there were about four of us backstage, and he was talking to us, and he said to us, you know, the way I feel, I shouldn't even be here today. So we said to him, well, why don't you go home? People will understand. They know, you know, what you've been going through. Now, there are, of course, about 600 people out there in the audience. And he said, no, because they, I got to explain to them about, you know, the things that have been happening over the last three weeks. Mm-hmm. And they want to hear it from me. So I have to, you know, talk about it. And so he, he didn't go. He, he went on out and spoke. And, and uh, I guess after I'd been backstage maybe about 20 minutes, he asked which one of us recognized Reverend Mil- a, a, a very prominent black uh, minister in Harlem at that time. And he asked which one of us recognized the guy. I said, I know what he looks like. He said, well, he's going to come today and make an appeal for clothing for my children because his children's clothing had been burned up in the firebombing. And uh, so why don't you go out and wait on him, and then when he comes in, bring him backstage, escort him backstage. So I said, okay. So I left and went out there, and I was sitting in the little lobby, lobby area, uh, waiting, you know, looking toward the, you know, the entrance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I heard Brother Malcolm say, assalamu alaikum. Mm-hmm. And the next thing I heard was shots. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like thousands of shots to me at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, those of us who were in the little lobby area, you know, we, there was a bathroom there. We ran into the bathroom, and then when the shooting stopped, we came out, and I ran through the swinging doors in the Audubon Ballroom. And the Audubon Ballroom is huge. It's a huge ballroom. And I ran all the way down front and jumped up on the stage. Mm. And uh, Mary Koshiyama, who was a Japanese-American, who was not a member of the OU, but who was very close to us. She had him cradled in her arms, and his shirt was open, and I saw all of those bullet holes in his body, mm. in, his, you know, in his chest and stomach area. And he was gasping. And I was thinking to myself, he's going to die, he's going to die. Mm. And uh, the brothers finally came and you know, put him on a rolling stretcher mm. and took him over to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. Mm. And... Uh, I have never forgiven that hospital because not a single doctor from that hospital would come over to the Audubon to, you know, with the brothers mm. to see him. Mm. I, I, I can assume they were afraid. They didn't know what was going on. Mm. But still, to me, that, that was all like, almost like unforgivable for a hospital. Mm. The brother, and they had to literally bogart a stretcher. They just took one. Mm. And, it was, and it was, since it was right across the street, they rolled it to the streets put him on the stretcher, and then rolled it back you know, over to the emergency room at Columbia's Presbyterian Hospital. Mm. So what effect uh, did, did witnessing his death have upon you? I know he was, he was a mentor to you. Um, so it, w- it was devastating. I, uh, I think I experienced more, more, at that time, the only death in my family had been my grandfather, who died in 1963, and I was very close to my grandfather. And this was the first time since then that I had felt that kind of grief. And it was probably even more so 
only because my granddaddy was 86 when he died. He had lived a long life. But the Malcolm was only 39. Mm. You know? And uh, when I left the Audubon that day, uh, I, I guess I went home. Well, I wasn't, didn't go home. My roommate kind of helped me get home. And, and I sat around and, and off and on in grief, finally crying. And then later that evening, because this happened in the afternoon, mid-afternoon, I began to write down then what happened that day. And everything that went through my mind, I wrote down. Mm-hmm. And uh, I published that in my memoir uh, called Witnessing Brother Malcolm X, the Master Teacher, that was that I first done in, in 2013. Mm-hmm. And I put, uh, put that, uh, my, you know, what I wrote that day down in my memoir about, uh, and from that very day, my attitude was that, you know, the United States government and the FBI were involved in Brother Malcolm's assassination. I mean, I knew that the people acting during the shootings, you know, were black, black men, uh, probably, and at the, at the asshole, they're probably associated with the nation of Islam. But I knew that they were, it was, it was not just, the government was involved in this. Mm-hmm. Because I, I knew how, you know, how they followed him and tracked him and hated what he was doing internationally, especially, you know, in Africa and all that kind of things, you know. So uh, I would never saw a single moment that I believed the official story they put out about the assassination, that, that, that these three people, because everybody who was inside, say there were at least five people, the two people who started the disturbance and the three people who did the shooting. But they got, and Hare, and I will believe until the day I die, that if Hare, if one of the guys, one of the brothers in our security detail shot Hare in the leg as he was running out, and so the crowd caught him, and, and may have beaten them to a pulp mm. if the police had not taken him away from them and threw him into a police car and driven him away. But if Hare had gotten away like the other four did, that never would have been a trial. I will always believe that. The only part of that plan that day that failed was Hare getting shot mm. and getting caught. So then they had to do something. So they rushed out and picked up these two members of the Nation of Islam and accused them of being involved. And then that was it. Mm. The four, other, the four people who were actually involved were never arrested, never picked up, and I think this was the deal, with, because there were elements in the Nation of Islam who were working with them, I believe, and they were told that if you, if you get away, nothing, you, nobody will be punished, and that's exactly what happened. And the only reason that, was, that Hare ended up spending 25 years in jail was that he, he got caught. If he had gotten away, there never would have been a trial. Because when, they, when, the, when the New York City police called me in for questioning, like they did all of us, that, they, the questions they were asking me seemed to be more to try to find out if I was swallowing the official story they were putting out than who actually you know, did it. So uh, I will always believe that. that and, and, I, and then, of course, I remember a statement that I, I read this later. Uh, uh, Anthony Summers wrote a book on J. Edgar Hoover and he quotes Hoover, he says in this book quoting Hoover talking to then Senator Lyndon Johnson uh, so which means right away that it had to be before 1960 because after 1960 uh, Johnson was, was vice president and then president 
So he, he, he said that Hoover said to then Senator, and he used the word then Senator Lyndon Johnson, quote, we wouldn't have any problem if we could get those two guys to fighting. We could get them to kill one another off, end of quote. Those two guys were Brother Malcolm and Dr. King. Wow. So unfortunately, we've run out of time. So we're going to have to call this part one of our interview. And you're going to have to come back because there's so much more that we haven't talked about and that we haven't discussed. So I'm not going to say goodbye. I'm just going to say I'll see you next month where we can continue this interview. So thank you, Mr. Bailey, for joining me today. Thank you very much. And this is a, has been an episode of DCPL's All Things Local series on Full Service Radio, broadcasted live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Please visit dclibrary.org to learn more about the library's services and programs. Talk to us online at DCPL on Twitter and at DC Public Library on Instagram. Listen and download this show wherever you listen to your podcast by searching for Full Service Radio. Uh, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.